This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. I don't want to do this tonight to highlight a trip that we took. I don't want to do this tonight to highlight how I feel about a trip that we took. I don't want to do this to put a focus on a trip that we will take again in the future, which we will do as a church. My heart behind doing this is that that we would consider again how faithful God is to fulfill his promises to his people. And when I say his people, that's included, that's, that's including you and I. God is faithful. He says what he means, and he means what he says. And we can always um, trust, lean back, and depend on him for his perfect word when he speaks to us. So that's the thing that I want to consider. This isn't about an experience or what people say or don't say about Israel. Uh, I've been teaching the Bible and studying the Bible for a long time. This, for me, was pretty pretty, um, pretty past due. And and to say that that it that it filled in some gaps is, for me, is an understatement. It really opened my eyes to, to huge, you know, a, a huge context of how everything is, is placed together. And I have so many stories and so many things I want to share with you, but I want to I I pace myself because we're going to touch on things and I don't want to get ahead of myself. But there was this one instance that, that I kind of had a moment... Um, I talked to you about the tells this morning. You guys remember if you were here this morning, these, these tells where they, they started off as like a, a, a city, just a city, or a little mound of dirt with a city. And then they would be conquered and built on and conquered and built on and conquered and built on and conquered and built on. So you have this hill, this little hill that ends up being like a mountain, but it's a mound of dirt. And one, they, they showed one in there. It's kind of hard to tell, but but uh, it just ends up being this mound of dirt with some ruins on top. Like the tell at Megiddo was 26, um, had 26 layers to it. If that's how many times it had been defeated and, and built on, defeated and built on, defeated and built on. And, and the history behind that and, and the, the process, but there's been nobody in history, there's been no people in history that have rebounded from absolute defeat like the Jewish people over and over and over again. We went through a Holocaust museum that had some of the most exhaustive information about the Holocaust that you'll ever, you could spend days in there. We had like, what, two hours? What was it? An hour and a half they gave us. We practically had to run through it. It was so big. But there was so much information, personal accounts, personal interviews, and the millions of Jews, but people, there was all kinds of people, but the millions of Jews that were massacred and killed because of uh, uh, anti-Semitism while we were there in Jerusalem, um, this, this gunman opens fire in a synagogue in Pittsburgh, you know, and, and we're processing that from that side of the world in Jerusalem at that time, talking to our guide, talking to other people. And, um, then the tour guide walks up to me today, and she, she kind of elbows me. Super cool lady. I'd like to say sweet, but I don't know if sweet really um, 
places her in the proper category. She, she was very, very um, informative. I loved her. She's incredible, but she elbowed me, and she said, hey, did you see Las Vegas is in the news today? And it was a couple days after the shooting in Pittsburgh. And I said, I didn't see that. She said, yeah. I said, well, what's Ve Vegas in the news for? And she said, there's a bunch of people painting swastikas on their garage doors, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, that it's real, like anti-Semitism and people coming against certain people groups, whether it's the Jews or whoever it is. But with all that said, the fact that they have, like, they have been established like as a country, as a people, and then been taken out, and then restored, and then taken out, and then restored. In the Jewish Holocaust Museum, there was this map, and this is the kind of stuff I love. Visual aids are, are incredible. There is this map that had the population, the Jewish population around the world when World War II started. Each country had the number of Jews that resided in that country. And one of the highest population of Jews was where? Poland, which makes sense because that's where Auschwitz was and Birkenau and where the majority of these camps and, and the extermination happened. Three, about three and a half million Jews were, were in Poland. But it had the numbers all across and the different countries and how many Jews were there. And they, I mean, they, they, they definitely did their research and, and, and broke open the record books. But then you go down to Israel, and they've got a number for Israel. And there was 400,000 Jews in Israel at the time that World War II started. And there was another account of somebody talking about how during World War II, there were these 400-odd plus or minus thousand Jews in Israel. And these, these exterminations were happening. They were completely wiping people out tens of thousands and millions of people. And, and you saw the big picture of, of um, Hitler's intention was to get to and overtake Israel. He wanted the land. That was really what his end game was. And they showed this map how he was conquering Europe to be able to go down and possess Israel. And then he launched forces south to come up from Africa. And he conquered most of North Africa to continue going north to Israel. And then you can see the rest of it and how it said multiple times on the tour, on the tours, and it kind of made more sense as we were there looking at history and putting everything together, that Israel is at, the, is at the center of the world. Have you ever seen a big map before and you just look right at the middle of the map? What's right at the middle? Like almost like a bullseye, the nation of Israel. This tiny little nation right in the middle of everything. And they had these things uh, in Israel that, that they said that Israel is at the, is, is at the middle of the world. And, and they had these things showing how Israel to the northeast and east was, was Asia. And, and the focus was uh, coming down to Israel. And, and it's a trade route. It's, it's like the middle where everybody meets. And then Europe, northern, western, eastern Europe, kind of goes down into the, the nation area of Israel. And then you have this massive continent, Africa, that kind of peaks out and trickles right into Israel again. And, and uh, I was just talking to, what was it, Scott? You mentioned the languages. Was that you? The, who said it? Um, west of Israel 
everybody writes from left to right. That was Chris. I apologize, Chris. Left to the west of Israel, if you look at a map, everybody writes from left to right. From the right of Israel, everybody writes from right to left. It's that distinguishable, right down almost a straight line. And and how everything kind of kind of comes to play again at this place that's that's the center. A lot of uh, speculation. I'm not I'm not really good with speculation. I went to Israel knowing that I probably wasn't going to be in. You know, people say walk in the footsteps of Jesus. It's not really going to happen when you go to Israel. The Jerusalem is a bustling metropolis. If you would ask me what I, how I would describe Jerusalem after just coming from Jerusalem, it's like a mini New York City. Seriously, it's like it's like people are built and living on top of each other. The 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 city's exploding, and it's like it's like a, a very urban, very urban environment. It's like a mini New York City, and. Um, just not, just, and I went into it praying, God, I don't want to have any expectations. But then when you're experiencing it, you find that you had some kind of deep-seated expectations to some degree, and, and that's just the way that it is. Anyway, so all, all these things to say, um, let's look at Genesis chapter 12, where it really all begins with God's promises to Abraham, what we uh, identify as believers theologically, as the Abrahamic covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant, the word of God, the promises that he made to Abraham that were to be fulfilled through his lineage, through his children. So if you open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to read through this, take, make a couple comments as we go through, and then we'll move on. Uh, This is the past. Remember I told you we're going to cover three sections, past, present, and future. Past, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in all the families of the earth... And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So this is the Abrahamic covenant. He's called to do some things that are not normal culturally for that day and age. He's called to leave his family. He's called to trust God. He's called to go to a place where God says, I have a place prepared for you. Does that sound familiar to you? I have a place prepared for you. I want you to trust me that it is so. And, and part of the foundation of our faith is that Jesus has come in the flesh to pay the penalty for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God. And, and in turn, God says, I, I have sent my son. And Jesus says to us, I am going to prepare a place for you that's better than you could ever imagine. And in obedience, he goes, the promises that he's going to be blessed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There is at least three mainstream religions in the world that claim Abraham as their father, which is also very interesting because he was, he is Abraham, father Abraham, many sons. He is very famous, but the Jewish heritage is linked to Abraham. The um, Muslim 
faith and heritage is linked to Abraham, which the connection is Ishmael, if you're familiar with the story in Genesis. And the Christians, you put those three together, that is the vast majority of the population of planet Earth. Directly linked their lineage back to Father Abraham, who was promised that he was going to have a great name. And back then, I don't even think Abraham could have imagine the things that God was going to do through his family. But let's continue to read on. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth tree of Marah, and the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent in Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. Does anybody know what the name Bethel in the Hebrew translates into English? Anybody? House of God. So, so this is the area that he is. This is the land that he's promised. And the, area, and the city that he goes to is called the house of God. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. Let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, looking at these initial promises in the past to Abraham. Starting in verse 8, chapter 11. By faith, that's a circleable two words right there. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. I have that underlined in my Bible because it's very often that God does call us to do things that he doesn't give us a roadmap for. He says, I want you to do this. And as we respond in obedience, he starts to unravel or reveal his plan, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. This, this, is, the, this is the identifier of a man of faith dwelling in a desert in tents in the promised land that God says he's going to give him, waiting for the city which foundations and whose builder and maker is God. Is that the kind of place that you want to live? That's the kind of place I want to live, you know, what, what God's intentions are, what God's purpose, what God's plans are. I want to dwell in that. And that's what he did by faith. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, which was part of the promise. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky and multitude innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. 
These all died in faith, not having received the promises. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. I was a little bit hesitant this morning to give that message on citizenship. I'll confess to you. I, I wasn't going to confess it this morning because I identify more as a pilgrim than I do as a citizen of, of this earth. And, and I very, very much look forward to my citizenship in heaven being me going to my homeland someday. My heart yearns for that. There was a really great quote by Spurgeon that I was going to quote in the services this morning that I decided not to. But he talks about how the, the Scotsman, his, his heart is in the land of the Scots and the Irish on the Emerald Isle, the best isle in, in the world. And, and for, the, for the British, their homeland. And it's talking about national pride. But then he, he goes on to talk about how, but how the, the Christian's heart should be so passionate and exploding for his homeland, which is in heaven. So, so yes, we should be thankful for our citizenship and our place on earth in whatever earthly kingdom we find ourselves in. But how much more should we be, should we be looking forward to longing and, and being able to identify more as a pilgrim on this earth temporally than, than really proud of our citizenship? But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For these, or for those who say such things, declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have opportunity to return. What does he mean by that? There wasn't a consideration that there was anything better back home. Back home. Because they were dwelling, they were moving forward in, in the promises of God, what God's word said to them. They are continuing to move forward, so there was no option to return. Otherwise, they would have opportunity to return, and they could have. But now they desire better. <clears throat> that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. I like that verse. God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's like, those are my kids. Those are my people. And there's some people that God's like, whoa, 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 don't, don't take my name. Don't take my name and slap it on that because it has nothing to do with me. But for, for those who operate and function in faith, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. I don't want to get too much further into this, um, but let's go ahead and continue to read because it's connected to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham believed that he was already past the time. He, his body was dead, and that's one of the kind of that's one of the things that it said. He was practically dead. His wife was practically dead. She was past the time of giving birth. But they believe and they gave this, they gave birth to this son, who then God says that he's requiring as a sacrifice. And I think it sinks in a little bit when you're standing on the Temple Mount and you have a guide, whoever that may be. We're going to have the same guide next year who did a phenomenal job. 
And she said, here's the Temple Mount. Here's Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, this is the spot where Isaac was bound to the altar that, that Abraham was going to offer up to God in obedience. And that's the key for us. The key is obedience to God. And we touched on this a few times during the trip. I, I think it's, it's very, very important because this is what really is pleasing to God's heart is our desire to be obedient to him. And he didn't require Abraham to go through with the sacrifice. God made a sacrifice possible so that Isaac didn't have to be sacrificed, right? So they're on the mountain. Abraham's about to be obedient to God because he believed that even if he did follow through with it, that God was able to even raise him from the dead if that, that's what was, was necessary. Can you wrap your mind around that? I don't know if you can. I struggle. I have a difficult time with that. But here's the picture. You know, many people say, and I think I've said this recently, and I, again, like I said, we talked about it on the trip. And this kind of hit me uh, recently pretty hard. People, people say that Jesus loved you so much that he was willing to go to the cross and die on the cross for your sins so that you can be reconciled to God. That's not good theology. That's not good Bible teaching. Jesus did not love you so much that he was willing to go to the cross. Did you know that? Are you guys going to stone me? Heretic. Jesus did not love you so much that he was willing to go to the cross and be crucified for your sins. Jesus loved the Father so much that he was willing to be obedient to the Father unto death so that by his blood you could be reconciled to the Father. The key is obedience. And Jesus in the extremity of his, his obedience to the Father, even like Grace mentioned, is there any other way for this cup to pass from me? God, please make it possible. God said, it's not possible. What's required is your absolute obedience in this situation. Jesus said, okay, if that's what's required, then that's what I'm going to do. And, and the world right now, you look at it, every single Religious system set up on earth. The focus is 100% every single time I challenge you to find the contrary example or the opposite from what I'm saying. 100% religious systems of the world, the focus is on sacrifice. 100%. What you can do for God and, and what God can do in turn for you based on what you can do for him. The definition in the Catholic Encyclopedia the de look it up. The definition in the Catholic Encyclopedia for grace is earned favor. They've changed the definition of grace to not something that is unmerited, but something that is earned. What does that mean? Whatever you can do for God, God will respond to you by giving you special measure of grace based on the sacrifice that you can offer. And, and if we're not careful, if we're not careful, I see this kind of uh, satanic uh, thought process slipping into even the evangelical church in the United States of America. If there's any church that focuses more on your service over your obedience, then there's a problem. Like we need people to serve and help, but we will stop doing things before we guilt trip people into doing them because they have to be uh, servants or, or, or work in service. Yes, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, but it wasn't for the sake of service. It was for the sake of obedience. So when we do things to God, we had better be doing them. And this is something that we see throughout scripture too. We had better be doing them with a heart towards him of obedience, not having something to offer to him because we want to gain his favor. 
or get some kind of get you know get some 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 way get a little bit closer to him. You want to be closer to God? Look at his word, cry out to him, ask him what he wants. And then when he speaks or you read it, your heart should be a heart of obedience to him. Yes, God. And when we talk about um, having struggles today, okay? So you have struggles and it always starts, whether it's sin or whatever the case may be, it always starts in your head. You realize that? It starts as a thought process. And, and, and the thought gives birth to temptation and you give over to temptation and then, you, and then you sin. And then the Bible instructs you and me as believers to take every thought captive, and what that, what that word in the Greek means, captive, means to arrest. So you have this picture of you have a thought that you shouldn't have. We all know what that's like. You have a thought that you shouldn't have, and you should, you should arrest that thought. Like a police officer coming into your brain, put your hands behind your back. That thought is arrested and being escorted off the premises. You are not giving it any, any kind of uh, slack whatsoever in your head. But what's the rest of that verse? That's a lot of, of the focus that we place is on the first part of the verse. You, you take every thought captive to what? To the obedience of Christ Jesus. And the reason that it says to the obedience of Christ Jesus is, is you're not taking a thought captive as a sacrifice. You're not taking a thought captive hoping to be able to reign in and control the flesh. You're taking a thought captive because it's, you know that it's not in, in the relationship with the father or your father's best interest for you to continue to entertain that thought and end up in some kind of compromise. So again, it goes back to obedience over and over and over. And this is what was required of Abraham. And this is how he responded. And even before that, can you imagine that it's all, when we talk about obedience and sacrifice, it's all boiled down to one day in particular. I don't want to get off. I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail or rant on this, but it's something that, that I'm, I'm kind of passionate about. It all boils down to one day in the Garden of Eden. And, and Adam and Eve could have done anything in the garden. They could have done anything. And they could have offered God all kinds of sacrifices, right? They could say, God, we're going to do this. We're going to name the animals. The animals. We're going we're gonna to trim the trees. We're going to pick the fruit. We're gonna, this is going to be the best looking garden ever. But all God required from them was one act of obedience. That was it. And it had to be there. The, the one act of obedience, do not take to eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. That was it. And there was no fence around the tree. There was no electric. There was no machine guns. If you got too close, you know, there was nothing to prohibit. The only thing that God desired in having a genuine right relationship with mankind that he created in his image was, was a response, a reciprocatory response to him in love of saying, okay, God, this is the standard you set and this is how I'm going to respond to you in obedience. So from the very beginning, and, and I don't want to go through it, but every single major relationship that God highlights throughout the entire Old Testament and the entire New Testament is all hinged and based on obedience to a God who is absolutely supreme and knows the best and all he wants for you and for me is to trust him in that. And he never fails you. He never comes short. He never lets you lose. He never leaves you. He always meets you every single time. But, but we don't like that word obedience. We don't like those words submission. It's so much easier to offer God a sacrifice sometimes than it is to be obedient. 
Would you guys agree with me on that? For me, it's so much easier to offer God a few sacrifices than to be obedient in one thing. How about loving people? Man, it'd be easier for me to spend 12 hours in prayer than to really love people the way that God's called me to love people. Because people stink and they're, and they're very difficult. They're hard. Anyway, so this is what um, he was doing even to the point of the sacrifice of his son, Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph uh, and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. And the reason I read through the rest of those is because all these were directly descendant, directly connected to their father, Abraham. And the others are too to some capacity, and we are too to some capacity. But these guys were the very beginning, and we see the faith that's making an impression through their lives. We see their obedience to God making an impression through their lives, and this is the highlight for them. So that's the past. The promises of God, the faithfulness of the people that he's called, his servants, uh, Abraham and Sarah's faith, their children's faith, the struggle is real in Hebrews chapter 11 where they didn't know what they were doing, where they were going, but they were still doing it. And then um, we have the, the fall of the second temple. The first temple, um, the, the nation of Israel falls to uh, an enemy that God uses to chastise them. The temple's torn down. 500 some odd years go by. And then they're able to go back to the land, rebuild the land, rebuild a second temple. And then after that, they fall into, do you know what the word is? What do they fall into? You get, they fall into disobedience again. You look, you do a word study and see how many times the Bible talks about obedience and disobedience. And I think that you will be shocked. They fall into disobedience again. And like any good parent chastises their children that they love, they're, they're in need of being chastised again. So the Babylonians come in. They're removed from the land. And um, I'm sorry, the second temple is the Romans come in, destroy the temple, the second temple, remove them from the land. The Babylonians were the first time. And then um, they're outside the land for a number of years, which brings us to the present. When I say present, I, I'd like to think that it's today, but it's not so much today as much as it's, the last hundred years really is the present for the nation of Israel. When we look at the history of the nation of Israel, the last hundred years, they've really come back on the scene, which is remarkable. I could have gone through the whole timeline, but we didn't have enough time. And we're going to run out of time tonight as well. But so let's fast forward to the 1900s. 1917, which is about a hundred years ago, right? 1917, the British captured Jerusalem during World War I. And we have what we enter into at that time in the early 20s, 1920s. We have what we enter into called the British Mandate. And it's the British controlling, overseeing um, the land of Israel. And they're the ones that, that are in charge. 1948, fast forward even more, the state of Israel is established after World War II. The world sees what devastating losses the Jews suffered 
there's some kind of sense of, of, of sorrow and mourning on their behalf. And there's some people, uh, that museum, the Friends of Zion, was an incredible museum to go through. It, it went through a bunch of historical figures that were non-Jews that said, hey, listen, we read our Bibles. They were all Christians. We read our Bibles, and these people should have the land that was promised to them. <laughs> and and they, they, they went to bat for them to try to get them back in. So you fast forward after World War II, 1948, the nation of Israel fulfilling prophecy in the Old Testament is born practically overnight, just like that. They're a nation again, out of nowhere, of people that were spread out all over the world. And the, the, one of the, the, the smallest number of their group actually lived there in Israel. And then they start to come back to the land in an agreement with Jordan Jerusalem was divided into Eastern Jerusalem on the Jordanian side and West Jerusalem on the Israel side. So the, the first plan that was given was, was very minimal. The land was very minimal. And then we have this, this thing that happened that many of you are probably aware of called the Six-Day War of 1967. The Jews have been living in the land and then 1967 all of her surrounding neighbors decide that we are just going to wipe Israel off the map. We're going to take all the land back. And even though they were overwhelmingly surprised, they didn't see it coming, um, they not only uh, defeated all of their enemies within six days, but they gained a large chunk of land from that battle. Uh, one of the cool things that our tour guide did that I guess a lot of tour guides do not do is she took us to the Golan Heights and we drove up the mountain and she showed us where the Jordanians and some of the other people had rockets and mortars set up and would launch bombs down into the, the, uh, the valley. What, what valley was that? What's that? I thought it was Galilee. The, the Golan Heights down into the, the Galilee Valley. And, and uh, our tour guide was alive during that time. And she said that the people in that area, they lived um, regular lives during the day. But at nights, they would put their kids to sleep in bomb shelters underneath the houses or, or different areas of the community. They would come together and put their kids to sleep in bomb shelters and, and go to sleep and hope that... Because they would just pick... The Jordanians would just pick an area. Well, there's a cluster of houses or people. Let's just bomb it. Boom, 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 start bombing it. So the Six-Day War happens, and they, the Israel gets control of all that whole area. This is something that she had said that I thought was interesting. If whoever controls the Golan Heights controls that part of the country. Because, you know, in war, whoever has the high ground has the advantage. And if you have the Golan Heights, you're looking down at a good part of that whole area of the country. And these are the kind of things that I couldn't really understand. Just saying it or hearing it, you're like, okay, that's great. But when you're up there, standing up there, and you're looking down, you're like, oh, man, this is crazy. They could literally bomb whoever they wanted from right here. But because of God's protection and his desire to bring the people back into the land, fulfilling some Old Testament prophecies that we're going to look like, that we're going to look at, um, he protected them, not only protected them, even though they were surprised, but he gives them a land. He gives them all of Jerusalem, except for, you know, right now, today. They do share it, but not to the same degree that they did where it split in half, east and west, like, like I just read. They have all the Golan Heights. They have other parts that the UN actually came back later and said, hey, you need to give some of the land back. And Israel's like, no, go. Like, they attacked us. We're not giving anything back. And that is... The, the, the pretty much the, the position of 
the Israelis right now, not knowing what the future is going to hold, but things are looking better in regards to their position in the land and, and more accurately, their inheritance that they've received and are going to continue to receive in the future. Let's look at a couple of these Old Testament prophecies as um, regarding or pertaining to the present state of the nation of Israel. We're going we're gonna to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, which they believe, if you talk to the Jews, they believe that this is direct fulfillment of prophecy happening right now in the nation of Israel. I'm going to read through this chapter, and then I'm going to jump up to 47. So you follow along if, if you can, please. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to run out of time, but the only thing that I have left really is the slide. So we'll, we'll talk about if we want to do that once we get there. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me, out of, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all around. Behold, behold, there were many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can you see these bones? So I answered, Oh, Lord God, you know. <laughs> you, not a simple yes. God, you know that, that they're there. I'm just going to leave this to you. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied and as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise. And suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. Now, we see other portions of Scripture that talk about how desolate the land was going to be when he kicked them out of the land. And this is what happened. We were standing up Megiddo, looking over the valley of Megiddo on the Megiddo Tell, where Armageddon is going to take place. And our tour guide was telling us how 50 years ago, how it was just swampland and nobody did anything there. Nobody lived there. It was just heaps of ruin. And then when the Israelites started to come back into the land, even the British, before the Israelites started to, they noticed how fertile the land was. Fertile? The land of milk and honey? The promised land? Fertile? Go figure. They noticed how fertile the land was, and they drained the swamps and, and started to rebuild the houses. And as we were standing there talking about it, we have a highway that was busy highway. We've got farmland that as far as the eye can see, and some of the most incredible fruit that's produced there that, that you have ever seen. We got to eat of it for two weeks. So I can tell you that it's a little different than, than what you'd get in other places. But you can see the restoration of the land. And, and even more importantly, the land wouldn't be in that, that position if it wasn't for the restoration of the people. The people were present. The people were there. The dry bones were made alive. And, and we have to take note of something. We know that this isn't talking of the first 
dysphoria. We know that it wasn't talking about the second dysphoria or, or the chastisement of the people. Because of this next verse, look at this next verse. This is New Testament language. This is not Old Testament fulfillment language. This is New Testament language. Verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. The Holy Spirit of God was not able to dwell within anybody before the cross of Jesus Christ, period. You never see it in the Old Testament. You always see it coming upon. You always see it coming alongside. You see an empowering of the Holy Spirit, but we were not able to be temples of the indwelling um, habitation of the Holy Spirit. So this is speaking of post, this is post-Messiah language that he's talking about here. This is nowadays that I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, as for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it for Judah and the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Then join them together to one another for yourself into one stick and they will become one in your hand. And the children of your people speak to you saying, will you not show us what you mean by these? Say to them, this says the Lord God, surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribe of Israel, his companions. And I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah and make them one stick and they shall be one in my hand. And the sticks on which they, you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations. There's a verse that you can underline. Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over all, over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms. Again, now this is speaking of the time of the kings in the Old Testament and... and um, uh, a long period of time when the northern and southern areas were divided into two, and it was north and southern Israel. Judah was the southern. And it, and it was an issue. It had been an issue, and God's saying, I'm not only going to bring them two together so that it will be one, but I'm going to gather the children from the four corners of the earth, in, in, my, in my language, in my words. He's going to make them one nation. How do we know that this is a future fulfillment? How do we know that this is not something that he was talking about after the first dysphoria? How do we know this is not something that he wasn't talking about after the second dysphoria or the second judgment on the nation of Israel? This is why. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel and one king shall be king over all. This has not happened in the nation of Israel to this day. They have a president and a prime minister today. The president is a figurehead. The prime minister has more executive power, but the Israelites pride themselves on being a democracy today. I don't know if you realize that, but they pride themselves on being a democracy. A democracy is not a patriarchy. A democracy is not a kingship. Who's going to be the king that's going to rule over the nation of Israel after all have been gathered from all over the world and restored into the land? Jesus Christ this is the fulfillment of this Old Testament scripture that speaks of the future coming of the Messiah where they will be unified again and brought back into the land. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, 
but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people and I shall be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them. That's more messianic language. Uh, the root of David, the, the line of the tribe of Judah. David, my servant, shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They also shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. The fulfillments of the promises of God to the nation of Israel further today and into the future. So we're looking, we're, we're really uh, naturally moving from the now to the future for the nation of Israel. We can see where they're at now, the progression that they've made. The amount of people, he says, that I'm going to breathe life into the dry bones. We don't have time to turn to Ezekiel chapter 47, but I want to encourage you on your free time to turn and read Ezekiel chapter 47. It's the prophecy of the Messiah coming, and, and it was incredible to see this. Like, I can't express it. I can't explain it. I'm not even going to try, okay? But it was incredible to be standing in the city of David, which is just south of the Temple Mount area in Jerusalem, and to see the point where Messiah is going to come on the Mount of Olives, like Jesus said, in this same place that, that he was ascended, he's going to return. Jesus is going to come to this place, and I have some pictures that are going to illustrate this. But then when he does, then, then there's going to be an earthquake. Boom! Messiah is going to come. He's going to conquer his enemies. Uh, uh, the east gate is sealed. I have pictures of that too. So the Messiah cannot come through. It's sealed. He's going to, boom, blow the doors down, go into the east gate towards where the temple mount, the temple is going to be on the temple mount. And then there's this, this spring of living water that's going to, to overtake the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is going to go flow down past the old city, and then it's going to go down to the Dead Sea. And this living water is going to be for the healing of the nations. It's so powerful, the living water that's going to flow from the, the Temple Mount, where the temple is, is so powerful that it's going to flow down to the lowest point, which does anybody know where the lowest point on planet Earth is? the Dead Sea. It's going to flow down to the lowest point into the Dead Sea, and it's going to be so life-giving that it's going to turn the Dead Sea into a sea of life. And there's going to be trees, and there's going to be fish, and there's going to be birds that come. And, and, and I have pictures of the Red Sea, it's, or the Dead Sea. It's radical. I saw people's pictures and heard people talk about it. And, and throughout antiquity, antiquity, the ancients, since forever, there was three things that the Jews were noted for. Part of this, the, the three wonders of the world, as far as the Jews were concerned. Number one, the temple. People would go to Jerusalem just to see the temple. Number two, the, the Dead Sea. The, that you could go to a place that you can get in the water and you could just float. It was, it was surreal. I felt like I was in outer space. I would try to go down. Like They're like, you can't swim. I'm like, baloney. Like, tell me I can't do something and I'm going to do it. That's just how I am. So the tour guide's like, you can't swim in the Dead Sea. I'm like, watch me swim. So here I am in the Dead Sea and I'm swimming. I'm like, see, I told you I could swim, you know? So I'm get up on, I, I swam way out to the deep part. There's nothing in there. No, it's it, it, no life whatsoever. And I'm trying to like push myself up. You know, you can do that in the pool. Push yourself up to see how deep I can go. And then I push myself up and then try to go deep. And I would go, boom, boom. Boom, boop, and it wouldn't go past my chin. It would just stop me. And it was just this incredible feeling like being in outer space. So, so the, the three wonders of Israel that people would go there to see was, is the temple, which is no longer there right now. 
The Dead Sea, which is one of the most unique places on planet Earth that I've ever been for sure. And third is the Sabbath day. It was an enigma to the rest of the world that these people could function and operate by taking a complete day off and not doing anything. The whole world would go just to see what it was like. And let me tell you, on Shabbat, Friday evening, when the Sabbath is starting, it's incredible. They have animated everything that you need to do in life. They have Shabbat elevators. They've got Shabbat coffee pots, everything. When the Shabbat is coming up, they've got a button on everything that says Shabbat. And, and you push it, Sabbath day, you push it for your, your uh, AC and you pre-program it to do whatever you want it to do all day Saturday, and you never have to touch it again. So right as the sun's going down, right before the Sabbath starts, you push all your Sabbath buttons, and everything is pre-programmed, and your coffee pot starts when you want it to. Your oven turns on to bake. You already have everything in the oven for the meal. Your oven turns on to bake. The elevator, since the elevator is not allowed to work, you push the Shabbat button, and it stops at every floor. Because every floor, every floor it stops. Yeah, we... we so you don't have to push a button and whatever floor you have to get off on, it stops there and you get off. But everything's animated. You don't do anything because you're not supposed to work. And the whole world was like, this is nuts. How, does this, how is this possible from antiquity to now, even with the technology they do it? So it's like, um, I forgot why I was talking about that. The wonders of the world, the three wonders of Israel. Oh, the Dead Sea and, and, and um, how unique it is. So all that to say, man, I feel like I, feel like I could talk so much just about, about the, the uniqueness and, and our experience of it. I'm sorry it took so long, um, but I hope you guys are blessed. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for, for being able to see um, the reality of your word, God, come to life for us. Thank you for, for um, the past, the testimony of the past, the present, how you continue to fill, fulfill your promises to us in the present, and, and for our hope in, in tomorrow, the future, because you are trustworthy and you are faithful. So God, I pray that you bless my brothers and sisters this week, encourage them, and um, allow them to have a blessed night. In Jesus' name, amen.